0: everyone, welcome back to TVP. This year is our 10th birthday, believe it or not, not as a podcast, but as a value franchise here at Schroeder's. We wanted to celebrate this in the pod by having a sort of party with some of our longest standing clients and past podcast guests by inviting them in and flipping the table. Usually on the pod, we interview people from all walks of life on their expertise, but in this mini series called Meet the Manager, our guests and clients are going to interview us instead and finally ask those burning questions that have been brewing over the past 10 years. We'll be releasing this mini-series on the off-weeks from our regular content, which we'll publish as normal. But we hope you enjoy this limited series where we place the value franchise in the interviewee seat as a birthday treat. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the fourth episode of our Meet the Manager series. In this episode, Simon Hallett will interview Andy Evans. Footy fans will remember Simon's last appearance in the pod is not only did he have an illustrious career as a professional investor who spent the majority of his time at Harding Lover, first as a fund manager, then finally as their CIO, but he is also the chairman of Plymouth Argyle FC. Since he appeared on the pod in January of 2022, we have two rounds of congratulations in order. The first is for the birth of his latest grandchild, and secondly, for his football team, Plymouth Argyle, for winning the League One Championship. Congrats! Andy Evans joined Schroeder's and the Value Team in 2015 and was a sell side analyst for 11 years before that. You know, we love a book recommendation on the pod, so his favorite investment piece is The Psychology of Happiness, written by James Montier, who's also become a guest on the pod. On this episode, they will cover investing, trying to take advantage of human behavior by humans themselves, the role of luck and judgment in investing, how to learn from past mistakes, and how to build a resilient psychological and emotional team. Enjoy.
1: Good morning, Andy. Um, this show's uh, to have me talk to you about you. So why don't we start by you giving us all a little bit of details uh, about your background. Where do you come from?
2: Yeah. Hi, Simon. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And thank you for agreeing to, to do this with us for our 10-year anniversary. Um, yeah, I'll probably give the background in terms of the context of me and, and the team, given that yeah, we're, we're having these podcasts for 10 years as a team together. And my background is that I joined the team slightly after it was formed around 2013. I joined a couple of years after that. And I was actually the first external hire um, into the team. So I guess I was employee number one with the founding fathers or the founding people ahead of me, the five of them who, who started the team. And I guess I'm a little bit different to some of the others on the team in that I've got a, a bit of a different background in terms of investment. Most people on the team actually started on the graduate scheme, there's only a few people who are external hires. And I actually had some time on the sales side as well. So I was on the dark side of the investing industry before I made the uh, the move across to the, the right side. And I was on the the sell side for about thirteen years, and then I've been on on the buy side for about seven eight years now.
1: Well, that's a background that uh, I I share that I'm not uh, I'm quite careful not to talk too much about. Well, welcome to the uh, light side. Hmm. Um, so, as I understand it, the value team is the only style based team at Schroders. Uh, how how did that come about?
2: So, there's obviously people with different styles of investing inside Schroders, but uh, really, there's the value team is the one which is congregating around an individual style. And the origins of the team back in 2013 was, it was actually Peter Harrison, who's now the CEO. He was at that time the head of equities. And he decided that there were a few people across the floor, the investment floor, who shared a common philosophy in terms of value investing and that congregating them all under one roof would be a pretty sensible move in a kind of quasi boutique uh, form. And so that was done in 2013. But the history of value investing at Schroeder is actually longer than that.
1: And is that value investing kind of based upon contrarian beliefs about markets?
2: Yeah, it largely is. There's a kind of apocryphal story about the origin back in the early 70s, which was pretty much that things which other investment managers didn't want were put into a separate fund, and this fund was, I don't think it was quite a dustbin fund, but it was funds, uh, stocks which were deemed to be either unwanted or too risky. They were put together in a fund. I say apocryphal because there's some debates as to whether that is the true origin of, not, of it or not. But what's true is that it always invested in companies which were pretty unloved. And that's just definitely still the case today. We're contrarian investors who want to invest in companies where the valuations are attractive, but by and large, there is a contrarian angle, which is that we're investing in companies where lots of people don't want to go near them. And for us, we think that's the opportunity and where we can, we can make money because people are running away from these opportunities.
1: So we can think that that's one of your basic beliefs about how markets function, that where there's consensus about stock prices, the consensus is usually wrong. Are there any other basic beliefs about markets that kind of underlie your investment philosophy?
2: Yeah, I've probably got quite a lot of Basic beliefs, but I was thinking about this the other day because I I had a, a sit down with um, a group of fourteen to fifteen year olds. There was a, a careers day and I was uh, notionally there to talk them through uh, finance and and how the finance industry works. Um, and towards the end, I kind of said, "You know, if, if you were to invest in a stock, what stock would you invest in?" Um, and after they're woken up uh, because I've been speaking far too long about finance, they, they said, "Oh well, I would invest in Apple or Amazon, or all, all the typical sort of." companies that you you might imagine. And it got me thinking about the beliefs. These were people who had never invested in the stock market or looked at the stock market. And their instant thing was to do two things. One was to say, what's a company that I know well, and I think is a good company. And the second thing is, what do I think about the future? Does the future look good for those companies? And if those two things were yes, then I can say the name of that company. quite quite simple rules that they had in place. And when I sat there and thought about those rules, I think I've probably got to the complete polar opposite of those two rules after working in the industry for some time. So on, on the first one, I don't think it's about finding the best company that you can possibly find. I think it's about finding where the expectations of the future are mispriced. So you could have some, something like NVIDIA where everyone's getting very excited about AI at this point in time. And it could be a, a fantastic company and it could be the best company that's out there. But if it's trading on an outrageous multiple or an outrageous expectation of the future, it's going to be very hard for you to make money in that and then in terms so, sorry sorry
1: that, that doesn't that depend partly on the growth rate but also on the uh time frame of the investor so if you have a high growth rate a high rate of return on reinvested earnings um you can actually grow yourself out out of what appear to be excessive valuations yeah I, you, I, do you actually agree with
2: that I, I i would i would certainly agree with that it's not the style of investing that, that we do but i think that is exactly the same thing as I discussed before. What you're doing is the, is the future expectations uh, are being discounted at the incorrect rate, and therefore, wherever that happens, you can make money. And so I'm, I'm definitely a value investor at heart, but I, I also recognise there are more than one way uh, to, to make money. In terms of the second thing, which their second beliefs, which is thinking about a future possible outcome, which may be going on out there in the world, And saying that's the outcome where I'm going to make money, and that's what I think the future looks like. Again, that that's something which I I just simply don't believe these days. I I think that you have to think about the world in a probabilistic fashion, that there's lots and lots of future paths. And as an investor, what's more important is that you're working out situations where you're going to make more money when things go to a favorable path than you lose when things go to a bad path. You're trying to skew uh, the upside, downside in, in your favour, and so they're two very different beliefs to the ones that those fourteen or fifteen-year-olds had with with no no experience, and I guess from there that then feeds on to um, other beliefs. And what one of the big things are that I think, as I said before, there are lots of ways that you can make money in stock markets, but what the academic evidence suggests is that there's only a few really endurable ones momentum is one that's not the way that we invest but momentum has lots of evidence that works over a long period of time investing in small caps but there are other ones out there the one that i'm most passionate about and the one that that really resonates with me is investing in value investing in cheap companies which has both a, a logical and an, an evidence support um, as to why we want to follow that style
1: so you, you mentioned the need for thinking probabilistically and i know that you have a great interest in Essentially, what I call decision science. So, is it fair to say that some of the inefficiencies that you're setting out to capture are the result of uh, cognitive biases that you know investors suffer from?
2: I think that's definitely got got to be the case. So, if, if again coming back to those very basic beliefs about the market, if we're um, if it's because of misaligned uh, future expectations, then there has to be a reason why those are happening. And I think that at a very basic level, when there's human interaction in any system, there's that um, opportunity that humans are making poor decisions. At a very, very basic level, I think the inefficiency that we're looking to exploit really comes down to the fact that people get scared and they get greedy at different points in time. And it's that very basic Buffett quote about being fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And it's that cycle of fear and greed. And if you think about the sort of companies that we have to look at, they're companies which are very out of favour. They're companies which everyone's in certain cases have given up on or they find too scary to invest in. And it's by picking through the bones of those uh, areas of the market that we think the opportunity set will be there for us to to make money. And I I think you know there's a number of cognitive biases which are really feeding into that. It's not just one individual one. The love for narratives is a, a big thing. When things are going well, people get incredibly carried away. They'll extrapolate fantastically fast growth rates uh, far into the future. They're the sort of things where we want to stay away, away from. And likewise, when things are going very bad, the narrative can get wrapped up in a very negative fashion and it become uh, to a, a far too negative place, which leaves opportunities for, for investors like us. Herd mentality is another big area where we try and uh, move it opposite to it. As you asked before, you know we're contrarians. We're trying to avoid where there's far too much uh, her mentality out there.
1: So so the the core belief is that the market is driven by human decision-making. Human decision-making suffers from cognitive flaws, which leads to inefficiencies which you can exploit. But your team, I presume, is made up entirely of humans. So how do you...
2: Could you just confirm that for me? Yeah, we're, we're all humans, yeah.
1: Right. So how, how do you uh, how do you overcome the biases that you suffer from as well as other market participants?
2: Yeah, and like a, I think it's interesting because whenever people talk about psychological biases, there, there's almost an implicit belief that you're not subject to them because you're aware of them. And I think we're very aware that we have all those biases and and we can be subject to them as well. So the best thing that we think we can do is to have a set of or a process – which tries to overcome them as best as possible. So even if that was starting from a really, really basic point in time, we have a screen where we screen the market and we focus on the cheapest part of the market. Even that in some ways is trying to overcome our psychological biases. If we've identified that this is an area which is going to be interesting, we don't want to be deviating away from that because we know that's where the probabilities are in our favor. There was lots of exciting things outside the cheapest part of the market, but we're effectively saying we don't want to go there but having that screen really keeps us true to that. It's kind of a bit like um, being tied to the mast to, to stop the sirens getting to you. It's, uh, it's incredibly important.
1: But the trouble is that, uh, you know, people don't like being tied to the mast. By requiring people to adopt the kind of discipline that you're talking about to overcome their biases, you're restricting their freedom. And do you, fi- do you find it difficult to impose this, uh, the, these handcuffs on people? Do they do they resist at all?
2: Well, I think we've all signed up for them. So you know, the the nine of us investors who sit around the uh, the, the table, th- this is what we wanted to do. So by signing up for it, I think we've effectively said this this is the style which suits our personality, and we're also willing to to accept that we're going to be fishing in this pool. As exciting as it may be to fish elsewhere, we're, we're going to what one of the punishments for us to try and get better performance is to have a bit less excitement in our lives and. And we're OK with that. I think also when you go beyond and we look into the analytical side of things, we do have a checklist of questions that we go through. But there's a lot of freedom for us to go away and explore it in any which way we want to. We're not so dogmatic that we can't move away from a set amount of rules. We think there's a lot of freedom for us to go and explore it any way we want to. So it's definitely not boring for the investors on the team, that's for sure.
1: I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting it was boring, I, but I was suggesting that people don't like having their freedom restricted, particularly in an in industry that has tended over the years to revere personalities, the kind of tendency towards hero worship is, uh, I find quite alarming. I don't know what you think about that.
2: Yeah. yeah, you know, we, we talk about psychological biases and I've kind of mentioned a couple, but what one, which I think is probably huge in the industry is, is overconfidence and, you know, overconfidence can come out in many different ways. And in some ways, the industry absolutely loves overconfidence. You know, Asset managers loves a, a very confident person standing in front of a room and telling them exactly what's what and here's the future travel of, of the economy and this is the way this stock's going to go. But, but it doesn't sit right with actually being a good investor. It's a, a slightly different skill set because in terms of being a good investor, you want to think probabilistically. You don't want to say this is definitely the path where the future is going to go to, because that's not the way the world works in, in, in my view. And so overconfidence, I think, can actually probably get you into, into quite a lot of trouble. It could do you a lot of favors if you want to raise a lot of assets by telling people great stories, but uh, that may not always be great the greatest thing for your investors as well.
1: I completely agree. Um, so so you know, you've know, you described the investment process that you're all committed to and that um, allows you a little bit of flexibility, but on a broader basis, Particularly as a value investor, where uh, return payoffs or excess return payoffs to value investing tend to be, cons- you know, concentrated into fairly short, abrupt periods. How how do you deal with those long periods of underperformance? And by deal with, I mean both in terms of your external communications and the emotional support that you may need to give your colleagues.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's a great question because. Uh- it gets to the heart of what you need if you had a checklist of things that you need to be a, a, a good value investor, I think being able to deal with some of the adversity is definitely part of it so there's probably a couple of ways i 'll tackle that the first I would say is that whilst value does have kind con- it does come in fits and starts if you look at five year rolling periods, the number of five year rolling periods which are negative for value is actually quite low and unfortunately we've had one in the more recent periods but we can have some comfort that if we stay through those trickier, shorter-term periods, the longer-term periods will, will show through in a, in a positive fashion. So I think that's a helpful backdrop that the evidence helps us and the belief in, in that longer-term evidence is a really quite a helpful thing. The, the second, I think, comes down to, to something slightly different. I think that's probably, for me, about mental health and, and how you can overcome adversity and resilience. And I don't think we, we've chatted about this before, but what, one of the things I do on the side here at Schroder's is that I'm, I'm the co-chair of Minds, which is the mental health um, area of of Schroder's. And I think there's two important reasons I'm involved with that. The, the first is that I've had people who are close to me who have had some impact from uh, adverse mental health, and there's some real damage from that. And so I want to be involved in in trying to help other people who not to be involved with that. But I think for absolutely everyone, there's an important part of mental health as well, particularly investors, which is that if you're not in the right frame of mind and you're overstressed or you're not thinking clearly enough, you're going to make bad decisions. And we're in the game of making good decisions. And so you need to make sure that you're in the right mental frame of mind to make the best possible decisions you are. And so ways that you can calm yourself down in terms of your limbic system and not getting, uh, allowing your more primal elements uh, make decisions for you. I think that's incredibly important. And so things like meditation or exercise are things which I and other people on the team will do to try and help. And then I think you've got to have a supportive environment that other people are are not going to be pointing fingers at you when things are going in the wrong direction. And we definitely have an environment on the team where people will normally admit their mistakes before anyone else will point them out. And I think that that sort of environment's incredibly important because it's a supportive environment which means that you're allowed to say well that one didn't go my way but i'm i'm open to talking about it or i'm free to talk about it and there's not someone pointing fingers and saying well you got that one wrong and what what's good what are you going to do about it
1: yeah so so a supportive environment and a kind of commitment to the kind of long-term existence of a return premium to value investing is obviously uh, associated with a kind of calm mental attitude we want to make sure that we make the same decision in the same in, in different emotional states effectively but there must have been times when you've been tempted to say you know this time it's different we need to change our investment process is is that the case or have you never been tempted to make big changes
2: yeah i i guess you yeah, we've seen over the past so probably half the time the team's been together has been a pretty um, tough time for, for for value investors. And we've definitely sat down and had conversations about, you know, what's the best way to to look at the process? And, you know, I we I don't think we ever had that conversation of do we still believe? We're, if we're giving up on value investing, then it, it really is all, all over or maybe the very best time to be buying it. But we always looked at those situations and said, do we believe in, in what we're doing? Yes. Do we think that if we follow the process, then the outcome should eventually come. And I think we were helped by the fact that if you looked at the valuations, they were getting more and more stretched. And so if anything, we felt as though that was pent up demand, which was being, uh, which being built up there, or pent up future performance was being pent up. It wasn't just the case of we had a, a set of companies which were remaining at the same valuation and the rest of the market was staying at the same valuations, but just the fundamentals were going against us. And I think that would be where we would be very concerned about him
1: right well I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pick up on the word that you mentioned just now about learning so i know that you know one of the things that you do is go back and look at mistakes and i'm kind of curious about how you define an error you know you, you like us uh, long-term investors over what time period do you look to make to see if um, a decision you made to buy or sell a stock? was the right decision is is it based upon time to look at outcomes or is it based on something else
2: yeah so the way that that we approach the after action reviews as we call them is that we have an archive which is effectively a database of all the work that we've done and that's been going for basically all the time that the the team's been around and there's now kind of thousands of entries into that When we reach a period which is three to five years later than when we we made the decision, we will dig it out of the archive and we'll do an after-action review. And the after-action review effectively looks like this. It says, have a look at what we forecast at that point in time. What's the outcome relative to that forecast three to five years later? And what we would do is that we would do it for every single company which is in the archive. We won't just do it for the ones which went very right and the ones which went very wrong. We think we'll be learning the wrong lessons there. But we do it over the biggest data set that we possibly can can do. And the purpose of doing it that way is that we feel that we might be able to tease out more if we were making systematic errors in, in the process as we go through. And so coming back to your question about, you know, have you changed the process... If there's any change in the process, it's very, very slow, but we think we've got a very solid process at the heart of it. There's small incremental improvements that we can make over time. Let, let, let me give you an example of that. So through this after-action review process, what one thing we found, and this wasn't companies necessarily bought or sold or, or said to pass on, it was on a subset of companies, we found that we were making accurate forecasts on normalised profits, so profits three to five years, after the date that we, we made the forecast. But what we identified is that the cost of getting there, so the balance sheet at that point in time, was worse than we expected. And that was because of either M&A um, being the reason they got to their, their normalized profits or additional capex or restructuring costs. There was a whole series of costs which got you there. And we're, we're very aware of return on capital employed and, and the importance of that. What that did do for us is said, okay, well, in our models, we have a shared model, we're going to put a bit more importance on the incremental return on capital employed, make sure that we're very aware of it, and probably prioritise the IRR over the holding period to, to an elevated status relative to just a, a pure upside. So that was a very, very small change, but it was one that we identified through doing those after-action reviews.
1: Got So let's talk a bit about the research you do, your stock pickers. You have access to large amounts of data, and I just—I'm curious about how you use data to make um, the forecasts that you know you were talking about just now. You know, how, how do you take all those inputs and turn them into a fairly accurate out output of earnings and cash flow forecasts?
2: Yeah. So the the first thing on um, on on data is that you know, I think we're believers in the eighty twenty rule in in that we think we can get a long way to the answer just by focusing on a relatively small amount of, of information. And that, that's where our seven red questions and the work that we do through our modeling get to is that we think they're the essential things that if we get those right or in the, in the ballpark being right, we stand a good chance of, of having a good outcome. So we're, we're very focused on, the, on the, the, the data that we look at and the way that, that we focus it in. And, and I think more broadly, if you think about data and, and investing, if you go back you know, in time, There was a real advantage to having different data from other people. So um, the Rothschilds made a lot of money when uh, they got ahead of the game and understood that Waterloo had been won for the British. And they turned up at the stock exchange a day early and they made uh, successful investments because they had information a day ahead of everyone else. Or Rockefeller used to gather as much possible information about his competitors and had an advantage when he came to buy their businesses because he was ahead of them in terms of the information advantage. I think we've got a very different problem away from that. We, I don't think the information advantage is the same these days. I think it's a bit like a, a person who likes to speak about their their bowel problems in public. Too much information. That that's the the issue these days. Right. And uh, what we need to do when we look at data is to make the make sure that we're taking the right amount of data and focusing in on on the stuff which is really really important. And it doesn't have to be particularly fancy stuff. It doesn't have to be the satellite imagery above a a shopping mall, it could be something very basic. So an example in, in terms of your, your question for forecasting. So one of the, the biases that you, we have out there is the issue of inside and outside view. So narratives can be in, incredibly compelling. And when you're looking at an individual company, you can get very, very carried away. Um, and you may get overexcited because it seems so exciting. The CEO is very charismatic the growth prospects look fantastic. And you have a set of assumptions. You say, this company is going to do a 20% margin five years out, and there's going to be 10% growth every single year between now and then. And that will be your inside view. And it will be probably informed by all the things you've seen around it. Not many people ask the question, and it's a very simple question of how likely is it that that thing happens? How likely of all the companies that we see in the world, is it that, 20% margins with 10% growth over five years actually happens. So we have a tool called our base rate tool. And what we effectively say is for all the companies out there in the world, how many of them have done that sort of growth rate and those sort of margins? And it allows us to use the outside view and not just uh, the inside view when we're making decisions around companies. So every time we forecast a margin, we'll go and look at all the other companies, similar companies out there in the world, and say, is it likely there's gonna do that margin in three to five years time?
1: Yeah, we think very similarly about data, that your edge is how you use it and how you filter it. And I actually like to quote Lou Gerstner, who was the head of IBM back in the 90s, who said that the role of analysts is to be intelligent filters. Uh, When I started in this business, the role of the analyst was actually to get the data, which was very hard to get. So I do think the nature of an investing edge has changed dramatically over the last 40, 45 years. So you know, here you are. You're all highly paid. I hope experienced, intelligent, thoughtful people with a good structured process. But where, where's the role of judgment? You know, where, where when are you allowed to go with your gut?
2: Yeah, um, I, I very much like your description. So thank you for that, first of all. But um, I, I think we're we're allowed to go with our gut pretty much every time that we look at a company, um, in the sense of if it was purely left to the machine or we'll be quant investors, we'll be very, very different investors. So every time that we look at a company, we're looking at the upside. In some ways, there's some subjectivity in that. We're having to make a forecast about the future, and we've made some judgment about how likely or unlikely that is to, to happen. When we think about the things which could go wrong, we put a risk score on every single company that we look at. Again, we're making a judgment about the risk of, of that company, how likely it is they are to achieve the forecast that, that we have there. And so in some ways you know I don't think we're kind of robots or you know we're leaving this purely to the computer I think if anything every single one of our judgments is down to uh, it's down to us it's down to personal judgment about um, how that company looks in terms of risk and reward
1: but do you think investing is a, a domain in which experience and the development of judgment is uh, even possible
2: so experience and and markets is, is a pretty interesting question because it's a, a complex one. I think the the very simple answer might might be that uh, you say experience is a good thing because look at all these people experience, they got great track records, but they may just be pure survivorship bias. Yeah.
0: You know,
2: it, it could be just the fact that those people who are quite good at investing also happen to be the ones who stuck around. So um, experience in investing is kind of quite difficult. I think the most difficult thing about it is the fact that it's not a linear job that we're doing here. You know, the, the markets aren't a linear thing. They're very complex and they're adaptive. They, they change a lot. And so the thing, the experiences that you might have had in the dot-com bubble might not serve you very well in the five years post that. So that because the world and the environment's changing a lot, I think experience could be overplayed. It could be just for the environments that, that you're in. Countering that, I would say there are definitely things which repeat over time. And cycles, for example... Seem to follow the, the the same sort of patterns, and that's where I think probably experience does help you. So I think it, it matters in terms of the nature of the investing that you're doing.
1: I'd agree with that, which which brings us on to you know the role of luck and skill. So you know, experience is you know sometimes there are some aspects of investing where experience doesn't help you. There are some aspects where forecasting doesn't always help you. You know, so you've talked a lot about the importance of you know structured process and the discipline to stick to it. But what about the role of luck and skill? You know, how how many of your forecasts do you get right, and when you get them right, do you know whether you're lucky or skillful?
2: Yeah, again, it's a it's a really tricky one in markets. So through the after action review process and thinking about that, one of the most difficult things is how do you unpick skill and luck, and I think it comes back to something which Michael Moberson did in in one of his books, which is the idea of the skill-luck continuum. And if you think about different activities out there, something like chess is very, very skill-heavy. It's a very skillful enterprise, and normally the person who's best at it sitting down for a game of chess will will tend to, to win. If you look at sports, basketball tends to be a high skill entity. Going down the spectrum, something like ice hockey is actually a bit more randomness. It's a bit more about luck. At the very other end of the spectrum, you've got going to the casino. That That's just pure luck in terms of that spectrum. The uh, investing is somewhere between skill and and uh, somewhere between ice hockey and, and going to the casino. It, there is a lot, lot of luck involved in the near term. It takes a long time for skill to actually materialise and therefore it is quite difficult to unpick for any one decision, whether it was skill or luck, which got you to, to that point in, in time. So when we're doing the after-action reviews, we're very wary of, of saying this one is definitely down to skill and this one's definitely down to luck. The ones which are easiest are the ones where we've made a misappraisal in our analysis, where there's a very clear mistake. And you know that's happened once or twice, and we can pick those up very clearly. We, with the ones which are more difficult to unpick, we try and look at clusters of them to understand whether it's happening more systematically. So if the sample size starts to get bigger, that's things where we think we can learn uh, learn from in, in a better way. Looking at the individual one, the one which went very very badly is normally a, a pretty poor idea of trying to learn mistakes from.
1: So when I'm thinking about the role of skill and luck and you know the kind of investment results that you've had it reminds me of the old saying that there are two kinds of portfolio managers, the skillful and the unlucky. So you know when things are going badly uh, but you think it's the result of bad luck, not 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 bad decision making. How do you communicate to clients that uh, you know you've just been unlucky? It's not that you've uh, got things wrong. you, you know, it's the environment.
2: Yeah, I, I, again, I think that's um probably one of the harder elements of it. So I think by and large, most people in this industry do understand probabilistic thinking and that there is skill and and, and luck involved in it. That, that seems to be forgotten when they see some shorter-term outcome numbers. It, it's a, it is a difficult thing to communicate. I think the way that we approach it is to say we're following a process and this process, we believe, over longer periods of time will deliver good performance. The work that we've done suggests that we are able to weed out more value traps than, than we buy. So there, there is a, uh, something successful that we identify in the pure research uh, that, that, that we do. So that, that that's kind of helpful for, for demonstrating that there is elements of um, skill in, involved in, in, in what we're doing. In terms of explaining away short-term performance, all we can do is say, this is the way that we're approaching um, skill and luck, and this is what might happen in certain time periods, but we believe you will be re- uh, be compensated over longer time periods. Out of interest, Simon, you, you've obviously been doing this. How, how did you approach that?
1: By... Trying to be as transparent as possible. Um, I think in everything we do, we try to be as transparent as possible. So, you know, in every short-term period where the environment has been against you, I think you have to reaffirm your commitment, as you said, to your investment philosophy and to the belief in the process, which is obviously, you know, if you've survived for a certain period of time, you've, it's doing doing good stead. But I do think it's very easy to descend into excuse making. And I think we need you know as a, as it seems you are I think you need to be very open internally about making errors uh, and I think actually you know being unafraid of confessing to your errors is really important with your clients and it's I- incredibly important internally you know you you alluded to it briefly where you talked about how you can have an environment in which you can analyze errors. But uh, it's safe to do so. It doesn't degenerate into a culture of blame, and you know I've worked over the last thirty years in well thirty well forty years in three investment firms, and you know in, in two of them it was very quick to develop into a culture of blame, which I think leads to very rapid erosion of the culture. But but if I could turn it back, just you know given that short term results are the result of luck and skill and given that you like us are long term investors we don't have many data points to analyze to you know be to be certain that an individual has been lucky or skillful how, how do you think investment people investment decision makers should be incentivized
2: so i think probably the, the clearest way of doing that is being tied to to the results and outcomes over longer time periods and that that is generally the way that it is done here um, Schroder's, that you, you are tied into your your fund performance. And I think that's the way it should be. I mean, on the team, by and large, we also take the active decision of going that step further and investing. You know, I, I personally have a lot of my uh, and my family's wealth involved with the, uh, the funds that we run. Now, I think that that's important because someone might look at it and say, that's completely irresponsible because of the lack of diversification. I do understand that. But I also think that we're actually in a privileged position, that we're fortunate enough that people have entrusted their money to us. And I don't think it's that much of an ask for us to be investing side by side and believing in ourselves in the same way that they've believed in in us. So I, I would think that being tied as, as much as possible to the performance of your fund is something which is very sensible way in terms of incentivising fund managers.
1: My, my concern there would be that that lack of diversification would make you risk averse. And, you know, you really do want to be in a position, you know, you, you have to take risks, particularly as a value investor. You have to buy when it feels uncomfortable. You have to buy when everybody else is selling. And if you're worried about your family's financial security, you may not be as prepared to take those risks as, uh, as you should be for the benefit of your clients.
2: Yeah, the, I guess this ties in with something slightly different and it's actually something we, we've discussed before in the past you know when uh, we got into the subject of the the cars that the footballers drive for example and I don't think mm-hmm. if you're working in finance you you should be able to find a way to live within your means and still be able to make the right decisions for for both you yeah. and and your investors and I think yeah. it probably comes down to how you how you decide to live your life and and the decisions you're going to make on that. And actually it ties in with, I used to work at the same firm as James Montier and he wrote what was my favourite piece on sales side research ever, which was, if it makes you happy. And that's where I came across the idea of hedonic adaption, the idea that you become very, very accustomed to something new that you buy. So if you buy a new house or you buy a new car, it's only going to take you two, three months before that's just the new normal for you. There's no additional happiness apart from that very early. where well, it's quite nice to drive around in a new car, mm. and kind of once you you kind of recognise that these material things aren't going to bring you that much benefit, then it's probably not worth your while spending lots of time and money and effort thinking about those things. There are other things in life, and that that means you can set yourselves up very differently. I think.
0: Well,
1: I wish you'd tell my footballers at Dimuthaga. It, <laughs> um, it drives me crazy when I see when I go into our car park in my dirty old Skoda. And I see young players who've just got a two-year contract uh, driving around in expensive Audis, and I, you know, in, the decision making in sports is by humans, uh, as in investing, and as in all domains of life. And the narratives surrounding sport are such that people suffer in many, many ways, even worse than in investing, from some of the biases that we've alluded to: overconfidence, you know, the the great man. Notion: Twenty-three-year-olds uh, think that they're immortal and that their careers are going to be as long as, you know, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's. But they very rarely are. So they they fail to look at the base case. Um, more more education, I think, is uh, going to be required in I, finance.
2: I hope you're helping with them out with that.
1: I'm, I'm working on it at the moment, actually. Yeah. Hmm. So I think we've um, taken up a bit too much time. So I just got one final question. You know, you, everything you've talked about. And you know, there's a reason why I'm the one asking you these questions. It's because you know that we share at Harding Lovner a lot of your beliefs about the importance of decision science, implementing processes to overcome human biases, the difficulties of you know going against consensus, the difficulties of group decision making. You know, almost everything that you've said we would agree with. The big difference between Schroeder's and Harding Lovner is that we call ourselves growth investors. And you call yourself value investors. Now, there's some, you know, I mean, we, we we are absolutely explicit that there are three legs to our stool, which is growth, value, and price, or oh, yeah, gr- uh, growth, quality, and price. But at, at root, we're looking for companies that can generate cash flow growth over very, very long holding periods. So, you know, we, we're we're very, very similar. But how come? You know what? What in your mind is the difference between growth and value? And I, you know, I'm reminded of I think it was Warren Buffett or maybe Charlie Munger who said there's no difference between growth and value. There's just investing. Well, how do you see the difference?
2: Yeah, so I, I, I would think, um, yeah, I, I guess it comes back to what I said before. I think there are lots of different ways that you you can make money in 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 markets. I think it it, it comes down to you're still trying to do the same thing in the sense of you're trying to find where expectations are are misappraised and where you could find future scenarios where there's more favorable uh, or you do better in, in favorable situations than you do in, in worse situations. You're probably doing exactly the same thing underlying it. The method of getting from A to B is just different. And so I would think of it, and we sometimes talk about it, in terms of objective value and subjective value. And the way that we think about the world is from an objective perspective perspective, where we can see the numbers that these companies have made in in the past. We can see the returns on assets these companies have made in the past, and we can see the valuation staring us in the face. And so we would like to say, on that basis, we could work out whether it's cheap or expensive on something quite moderate in terms of future expectations. Mm. I think from a growth investor's perspective, it would be more focusing on the subjective value, the future possible um, outcomes can the growth continue in the same rate as it has done before? Can the returns remain that high? And so when it comes down to the difference between growth and value investors, I think it comes down to the person. I think it comes down to where do you feel most comfortable? And for me, personally, I've always felt more comfortable in things I can see and touch. And and therefore, I can see and touch the the past performance of a company. And I can see and touch that that valuation. I think growth investors will, and and we've got some very good growth investors here, here at schroders and spend time with them and they're doing something very similar to us but they like to see and feel the touch in terms of thinking that the future growth will be greater than than the markets currently anticipating so i think that's where the, the difference lies i think it comes down to the person and what you're what you're most comfortable doing in terms of investing
1: i like the uh, distinction between subjective and objective reality particularly as the Owner of a football club where there's no objective value in a football club whatsoever, <laughs>
2: so, but there is glory with your uh, with your championship win.
1: There is a lot of um, psychic pleasure <laughs> associated with owning a football club, uh, but there's no financial model that justifies the price that people, including me, pay to be those owners. You can't there are very few cash flows that you can discount at the appropriate rate from the future that it's just uh you know the subjective
2: you, you could ask uh, all the argyle fans uh, what price they'll put on on that final win to, to get them the championship and uh i imagine they'll put well, a very very high price on it
1: well again we have kind of agency issues they put a very high price on it because it's not their money <laughs> 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 on that happy note well thank you very much that was fun i think we we're over time so we better stop
2: yeah no thank you very much simon